You are listening to Investing Matters, brought to you in association with London Southeast. This is the show that provides informative, educational, and entertaining content from the world of investing. We do not give advice, so please do your own research. Hello and welcome to the Investing Matters podcast. My name is Peter Higgins, and today I have the huge privilege of speaking with the usually talented and sought-after thought leader, Simon French. He is Panmure Gordon's Chief Economist, Managing Director and Head of Research. Hello and welcome, Simon. How are you today? Uh, Peter, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm very well, thank you. Looking forward to uh, a festive break in not too short order. Yes, it has been a, a long and turbulent year, hasn't it? It certainly has. I was doing some prep for this podcast earlier, and it looks like $38 trillion has been wiped off global capital markets this year. That's a pretty painful backdrop for investors at whatever level. Absolutely. We'll, we'll touch on maybe touch on that $38 trillion a bit late, later on. Uh, thank you ever so much for coming on here. I know how busy you are, and I know that you're ready to, to, to get, get away from the city and just have a bit of time out with your, with your family. So I'm conscious of I'm just getting into these questions with you, um, Simon. I'm going to start with um, setting the scene, if I may, uh, for our global audience of professional, institutional, private investors. Um, Michael Corder, the English novelist, wrote, success has always been easy to measure. It is the distance between one's origins and one's final achievements. Given that quote, please would you be kind enough to share with our audience a brief overview of your origins and your journey from the earliest interest in maths, economy, economics as a young person. Oh, wow. Uh, look, I'm, I'm delighted to share that, albeit uh, I'll, let, uh, I'll let listeners and viewers uh, judge whether um, it's an interesting backstory. Um, I was born 40-plus um, years ago in, in Hull in East Yorkshire, and... Um, was always fairly mathematically uh, interested. Uh, wasn't always the most talented, particularly in the early years, but I loved those. those it was predated Sudoku, but those little sort of um, uh, quiz books, sort of um, uh, number-based, sort of uh, cross between a, a crossword and a Sudoku. Um, and therefore, I, I sort of thought that something mathematical would end up being the type of thing I have a have a passion for, and having gone to school in uh, in Yorkshire and, and latterly in, in Derbyshire, I spent four years, four very happy years, in County Durham at, at Durham University, studying economics and then economics and finance, and then joined uh, the civil service um, as a assistant economist on their fast stream program back in two thousand two, and worked uh, initially as a labour market economist, working on migration issues, childcare issues, pensions issues, um, and then following 2008, moved more to the centre of government to the Cabinet Office, as it became apparent the centre of government needed a more economic and analytical thinking. A uh, very happy period of about six years there before 2014, and moved to the private sector uh, to Pamela Gordon, my current employer, where I've been for the last eight years, uh, initially as UK economist and now as chief economist and head of research. And that journey, um, look, others have in my profession have escalated to chief economist status, to big institutions, 
faster than I, but I did feel, if I can make one reflection on my journey, I did feel that the formative years I had in the early 2000s in the civil service, where whatever one's views of the public sector, it provides you initially with the ability to get a really broad understanding, certainly the fast stream program for graduates, a broad understanding of the quantitative methods required to be an economic advisor and economist, and also some of the softer skills of engaging with senior stakeholders, with ministers, with senior officials. And that has been invaluable as my career has developed and I've changed sectors to be able to take those same skills and apply it to another part of the economy, specifically uh, capital markets. Brilliant, yeah, I love that reply, thank you. Now, I want, I want to go back a little bit, if I may, and just ask you about your greatest lessons memories of that period during when you were working in a civil service because you you were you know involved in in that sector for for around 12 years there's a lot lots were going on lots lots still going on in, within the sector what was your greatest memories and lessons from that period Simon uh, the, the power of pulling data sets together, and that might sound quite a sort of technical answer, kind of, I hope not a boring answer, but it's, uh, let me translate it into economic outcomes. So nothing that is worth doing in public service is easy uh, and is linear. It's complicated. It means run, you know, bringing data sets together, be bringing delivery organizations together. And when it came to designing where, the government at the time in the mid 2000s was going to roll out childcare short start centers, the type of things that help uh, particularly single mothers, but parents um, across the, the economy get back into work by providing um, affordable childcare in their local area. Actually understanding where to put those uh, short start areas required data from the Department for Education and the Department for Work and Pensions coming together, the data mining to get understand where you get your best bang for your buck in terms of the use of public money. And look, there are conversations ongoing at the moment on the efficient use of public money, given the deficits that have been spent the world over. And therefore, if you like, my reflections were to squeeze out the top amount of value out of uh, public spending. Uh, you need to delve into the data, merge data sets together and come up with rigorous, empirically grounded views, because otherwise you're just another person with an opinion and you lead to big misallocation and taking those same um, applied methodological lessons and then applying them to my current career was the, when I talked in my first answer about the uh, the, 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 the test bed, the, the, the development that was able to take place, that example early on in my economics career um, was really quite um, important and influential to my uh, approach to economic analysis. Brilliant, thank you for that. Uh, and then, Simon, you, you joined Pamir Gordon as Chief Economist in 2015. How did that opportunity come about and what were your aspirations at the time when you took, took the role? Yeah, look, it would be very easy for me to sit here and say, look, you know, I, I reached out to, you know, people in the city and, and presented. Um, it wasn't like that. Uh, I have to be very honest. I like to be uh, very honest with my answers. Um, I was working at the time for someone who's been influential uh, to my career, someone you've uh, interviewed recently, Stephen Kelly, former chief executive of, of, of SAGE, of Microfocus. Uh, 
a guy had come to do a tour of duty, as he calls it, uh, in the public sector. And I, I ran his private office in my last post uh, in, in the civil service. And he had experience of working with Pamela Gordon when they were his broker as uh, chief executive of Microfocus. And um, those contacts enabled me to initially go to Panmure on a, a one-year secondment because uh, the public sector, the, uh, the civil service, want an exchange of, um, of experience, want their analysts to have a plurality of sector experiences. And the plan was to go out for a year, experience that and come back with, with a more enhanced set of skills. <laughs> Eight years on, I am still here, so you can guess uh, if you haven't already, um, the, uh, the the scenario um, where uh, I took a real interest in what I was doing at Pamela Gordon, they took a liking to me and presented an offer that means, means, means I haven't returned to uh, the civil service. No, I, I love that reply. And, and the, the beauty of it is, I know that... Um, Stephen is always one that's looking out for the sharpest brains and the sharpest minds, and he wants to wants to work with the best of the best. So he clearly saw something in you, which you know, which was absolutely spot on at the time. So yeah, he's got he's got good vision as um, as Stephen. Now I, I wanted to ask you, if I may, could you share an overview for those that don't know about Panyol Gordon, um, its services and its role within the investment industry, please. So we are a corporate broker to about 100 publicly listed companies, and we provide a full investment banking service uh, as nominated advisor, corporate broker, uh, providers of research, tra um, trading uh, for largely the UK mid-cap sector, the smaller mid-cap sector. And uh, that uh, role uh, I think all of us who have been engaged with capital markets in the UK uh, recognise that the health of those markets is currently being questioned and the importance of fundraising, good quality research, good advisory service, I think has never been um, higher when uh, at a time there are global investors looking at whether they have to be exposed to the UK equity markets. And so Pamela Gordon, the entire advisory stockbroking investment banking community in, in, in London and across the UK, it's not just a London uh, phenomenon, you know, other great, good finan great financial cities uh, across the country, have to, have to continue to raise their game if the UK capital markets are to remain relevant and keep their relevancy they've developed over the last few decades. Indeed, and I, I agree with you there. I think the beauty of what's been going on over the past, I think for the last five years, is is that is the focus is more national and not making everything all about London. I think that's fantastic. We've got so many different hubs going on, you know, technology hubs and biotech hubs and pharma hubs. So yeah, that's really good that's going on. And then for raising money as well, regionally as well. That's really important. Now, Simon, I'm conscious that you wear several hats, which encompass numerous facets, of the utmost importance for and within Pamela Gordon. Please, can you give us an overview of the sheer scale and importance of your roles and responsibilities within the group? Right, so uh, I'm Chief Economist and Head of Research. So there are two hats there that I sort of 
I principally wear. Uh, on the chief economist side, this is providing, uh, I think, two, arguably three buckets of advisory services. Advisory service for institutional clients, institutional investors. These are pension funds, hedge funds, who uh, private wealth managers who are looking to um, understand how macroeconomic impacts are going to influence their in, their investment decisions. Um, and you know, an, an economist, and, and, and the danger you'll get me on my soapbox here, is a, da a danger that economists are confused as being somewhat, they're fortune tellers, or they, they have a, a sort of mystic ability. They don't. The, the job, I think, firmly, an economist uh, on, the, on the sell side, is to, through their analysis, try and de-risk an investment decision. You cannot remove risk, but you can de-risk it if the quality of your analysis is good. And that is my, if you like, my sweet spot in terms of my economic advice for the institutional uh, audience. But then I also mentioned, Pammy Gordon, we are corporate broker to more than 100 companies. And the vast, vast majority of those companies do not have in-house economic expertise. And therefore, there is a shared service there that I provide to, to boards, uh, boards of our uh, the companies that we represent and our broker to, but also a broader suite of, uh, of companies um, where they want to understand the economic impacts on their business. Um, because again, you know, we have a lot of great UK public companies and private companies who are very good at understanding their markets, very good at understanding the, their product, but actually no more so than in the last 12 months are potentially sideswiped by big macroeconomic events. So the second big bucket of my economics role is, is supporting our uh, corporate clients. And then my other hat is as head of research, and we have more than 25 equity analysts, uh, Pamela Gordon, covering a, a multitude of, of sectors uh, across the UK public markets, uh, each analyst covering between 10 to 15 uh, public companies in terms of their research. And, and I, I manage that, that team to ensure that, uh, or try to the best of my ability, it's impossible to ensure, to manage the best of my ability to support them and I think that's really important as a as a as a manager, as a leader. Um, I, I never want to be dictatorial. I want to support them to be the best analysts they can be. And I, I'm very blessed to have a very experienced, uh, very expert research team. And my my job as head of research is to facilitate support and on occasion provide also a top level economic steer to like cross populate my economics role with my head of research role to make sure the PAMU research is the very best in the marketplace, which is our ambition. Brilliant. And, and a, a note that you have um, helped raise um, clients over 2.5 billion since 2020. Um, so, you know, and 270 stocks, 250 analysts or more you've got there as well. And you've got over 100 corporate clients. So you, you, you're a busy team, you know, and you've got aspirations in the US as well, I believe. That's right. So you mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast uh, the importance of the regional footprint. So we've recently opened a Leeds office to uh, support the the levelling up agenda, which is always focused here in the UK about capital, uh, you know, spending from the public sector in the regions, but actually capital raising for the great UK companies that exist across the north of England, particularly. I think is an area that the London-based brokership community has somewhat turned its back on in recent years. And we want to 
leaning in the opposite direction by opening a, a Leeds office that really shows our commitment to the regions. But, uh, but Europe, the other big geography is not domestic, it's international in the US market. And the, the relevance of the US investor can, cannot be understated. If you want to have a viable UK brokership model, you have to have US distribution because they own 40% of, of UK equities. They are the price maker on, on global capital markets. And being able to uh, distribute, be able to take our corporates to market uh, in the United States is key. So we have uh, a team both um, on the sales and on the trading side that sells straight into the United States. And um, whether you think, and maybe it's a, a debate for another podcast, the sheer scale of the US market compared to all other capital markets is healthy. Uh, it is the the reality of quite a number of years now where the US market has grown in terms of liquidity and scale and left Europe uh, and Asia behind uh, ultimately. Thank you. Now you're working with UK and international clients Simon and businesses and CEOs and CFOs. I'm often struck by how a company decides who they want to work with and um, what sort of best of breed sort of traits are you looking for regarding successful businesses and CEOs and CFOs when you look and say, yeah, we'll work with that particular business? Well, you are, I mean, this is not unique, uh, certainly to to, to either myself or, or, or to Pamela Gordon, but you are looking for companies that have a uh, an intellectual property that is difficult to replicate the famous Warren Buffett moat around your investment idea. Uh, it can be either intellectual property or within that some technology that's spun out of that intellectual property that is also quite difficult to either scale or duplicate or done as efficiently. And when you're thinking about the type of, and I come back to this phrase, you know, when international investors, global asset allocators are looking at allocating to the UK and asking themselves the question, do we have to be invested here? If the UK on its public markets has companies that are best in class, best in breed, have intellectual property that isn't available on other global equity markets, then the answer will be yes. If we don't, and this is why the health of capital markets is so important, then actually the UK as less than 3% of global GDP can increasingly be ignored. This is why the brokership community supporting the transition of our great IP, our great private companies into public companies is a really important part of making a healthy ecosystem. And those are the type of businesses and, and leaders we look to, to work with because those are the ones that can get a broad base of investors, a diversified shareholder register, which becomes in itself stable capital and ultimately for a business cheap capital, which is what they want to enable them to grow and to scale uh, and achieve for all their stakeholders the outcomes they want. Brilliant. I love that reply. Now, you, you touched on there um, the health of, of, of markets, corporate markets. Um, we've seen or we saw a flurry of, of um, listings in 2020 and, and 2021, and we seem to be flatlined a little bit and decline of IPOs in, in 2022. Um, We've also seen some difficulties regarding some of the IPOs declining from the IPO price. We've even seen some delistings, um, the most recent example being Jules. Um, how should investors and CEOs overcome some of their 
the behavioral mistakes regarding overconfidence. You know, the IPO comes out, it's been marketed well, and sometimes they don't flurry. They don't um, have a successful time of it. Yeah, I, I caution, you know, I don't ever want to uh, answer questions such as this as if I, I, I know the answer, indeed, if, if anybody knows the answer in, total, in, in totality, because every single cycle of IPOs, uh, initial public offerings, um, tends to be uh, very frenzied and then it quickly the door quickly shuts to new issuance and you you reference that period there was a frenzy of ipos as the world economy got back moving after the pandemic and then some of the froth led to declines that closed capital raising you know initial uh, primary capital raisings for pretty much the whole market and has been the case throughout 2022 now it's difficult sometimes to disentangle how much of that was just um, capital raising overdoing it and getting carried away in 2021 versus the fact that capital has become more expensive this year and the whole investment ecosystem is adjusting to a very, very different cost of capital, not just from 2021 and 2022, but arguably all the way since 2008. And you could even trace back the bond market movements to a, a different era of maybe 30, 35 years ago. These are pretty seismic changes. So that's why I say I don't profess to know the whole lands because there are multiple factors play, at play here. There is the undoubted exuberance, the overheating of the IPO market, which uh, cyclically was not sustainable, versus very, very different financial conditions that just makes primary issuance more challenging. The one thing I would say going into 2023 is we are now seeing companies uh, who are looking to transition from being private companies to public companies come back to the market, in, not yet having raised capital, but doing pre-marketing at a more realistic valuation based on uh, the fundamentals of the cost of equity capital today, not 12 months ago, and understanding some of the economic challenges that are undoubtedly still to come and pricing those accordingly. And when you get the realism starting to emerge between the buy side and the sell side and the corporates, those, those three uh, groups coming together, you start to see activity starting to return. So I am more upbeat in that regard for next year. Brilliant. Now you, you touched on um, money be, was at, at one stage cheaper, but it's got uh, more expensive recently. Therefore, the venture capitalists and the other entities that support certain companies, um, the money has got a bit more expensive. Um, given your vast data crunching um, Simon and access to via Panmure Gordon regarding the economic outlook what's your view you've touched on it a little bit there regarding 2023 you know you touched on maybe we'll see more IPOs maybe we'll see more fundraising um, could you expand on that just a little bit because what I'm conscious of is that we've got an audience of listeners here who are looking to <laughs> to allocate money to the markets but towards the latter part of this year it's been a bit of a you know what I'll just wait until 2023. Yeah. Um, so from an economic standpoint, and I, I put my economist hat here, not my, uh, my hat on here rather than as a stockbroker. Uh, and I would say that there is still in 2023 some more interest rate increases to come, taking the Fed funds rate, the Bank of England base rate, the ECP deposit rate higher in nominal terms. Um, but on the flip side, inflation will will come down. I mean, I know 
many of your listeners will have heard that promise from economists quite a lot over the last 12 months, and it hasn't always been the case. But I think we have gone through peak inflation now, and that will become a slightly easier backdrop for consumers. Um, but from the perspective of investors looking when, to, I mean, timing the market is a notoriously difficult thing to do. Uh, I will throw in a couple of data points, one on the bullish side, uh, which is an important place to start, I think. Uh, the UK equity market currently is hovering around 10 times forward uh, earnings, so forward PE price earnings. If you had bought the market on less than 10 times earnings in the history of the UK equity market, or on average over the next five years, you make a total return of about 93%, um, which is considerably better than if you bought the market at any higher valuations. That's the bottom end of the range. So for example, if you'd lost, sorry, if you'd bought the market when it was more than 20 times earnings on a five-year view, you would lose money, uh, at least historically that's been the case. So there is a valuation story that is very much, uh, if you like, supporting timing the market around these levels. The slight caution, and of course I'm an economist, so I'm going to give you on the one hand, on the other hand, you're never going to get a one-handed economist. Uh, even, even your pulling power, Peter, will struggle to get a one-handed economist on, a, on your podcast. Um, on the flip side, is, in fact, central banks are still going to be withdrawing liquidity from the marketplace next year. I talked about interest rates. It's not just interest rates. It's also quantitative tapering. Having spent a decade or more getting used to the term quantitative easing, which was central banks buying assets, mainly sovereign debt, they are now selling those assets back to the market. And that means that the private sector is being asked, private investors are being asked to soak up lots of public sector debt that the central banks have been buying. That is tightening financial conditions, that's pulling liquidity available out of available market for equities. So that is the cautionary tale, which is this QT, quantitative tapering, is very much going to be a theme of 2023. It's going to be quite difficult to see the kind of returns that we've become used to in the QE period being sustained in the QT period. I love that response. I'm going to have to listen to that thoroughly when I go back to actually let it all soak in. Um, the, the important there, and, and lots of important aspects talked about there, I, I want you to just go down a bit more, if you may, in more detail about the importance of investors, institutional or otherwise, and private investors, realising that potentially we're going to be going through a period going forward of slower growth, still growth, but slower growth. I think we've had periods in the past where there's been exponential growth for certain companies, but investors need to have a, not necessarily, well, yes, lower their expectations possibly going forward. Um, yes, from a macroeconomic standpoint, the global population is growing at a slower rate. The working age population, so the, the most productive part of that population is shrinking in large parts of the world, including China, Japan, the Eurozone, not yet in uh, the US, UK, Canada, but it will come as the population ages. And therefore, it becomes just harder to squeeze out the level of growth that we had during the post-Second World War baby boom period, where we had a real demographic bulge, which could support economic activity. That is not to say that growth is impossible. Far from it. Uh, actually, I think, and this is certainly where I'm in the cup half full view, is the productivity, which is the absent adding workers to your economy, is the other route to um, generating economic growth. I think productivity is about to kick up higher 
if you like, out of necessity, because workers are going to become more scarce and actually uh, automation, capital deepening will support productivity and some of the changes as the result of uh, the pandemic facilitate a, a more productive economy, uh, despite some of the political commentary to the opposite. And so, yes, investors need to condition themselves for, if you like, less what I would describe as easy growth, either debt fueled or demographically fueled. But perhaps, and I, and I, th I think I've, I mean, I've written in, in, in my, my Times column and also my research at Pamir about this, is that potentially productivity comes as the unexpected saviour for investors. Certainly businesses that can tap into those trends of becoming slightly less labour intensive, more capital intensive, may be able to squeeze out productivity rates, productivity growth, that they really haven't been accustomed to for the last 15 years or so. Excellent reply. Thank you. Thank you for that, Simon. Now, Simon, you've touched on it there. We've spoken about it um, already. The market's experienced great turbulence and increased volatility um, due to rising interest rates, rising inflation, energy costs. And of course, we've not touched on it, geopolitical conflicts, yeah, which is what's ongoing at the moment. Um, during such times, difficult times, the best course of action is usually to take a deep breath and focus on one's long-term investment goals. However, this is harder and not as easy. Uh, it's easier said than done. An experienced economist such as yourself, an investment strategist, what advice would you give to long-term investors at this time? Don't try and time the market. I mean, uh, I'm mindful that we've just spent five minutes, maybe 10 minutes, talking about some of the factors that may encourage you to time the market, to position yourself accordingly. But look, there is a if you like, inconvenient truth for the sell-side uh, sell advisors, which is that none of us possess the, the gift of perfect foresight. You know, uh, pandemics come along, um, you know, wars come along, uh, hopefully not in 2023, uh, you know, plague of locusts, but, you know, it, it, wouldn't, it would be on brand with these big shocks that have taken place in recent years that are far too regular uh, for anybody's liking. My advice, though, to long-term investors is you know, the age-old strategy of diversifying not so much over um, sectors, but actually over time diversify over time and, and, and recognize that uh, you know, if you keep uh, putting capital to work at a, a regular intervals, um, uh, you, know, you give yourself the best possible chance of having some exposure to those moments in capital markets where those supernormal returns are made, which are, seem obvious in hindsight. Gosh, we sure should have bought in early 2009 or uh, in March 2020. I mean, the, at the time, I remember, you know, the, the, certainly in 2020, March 2020, it was very difficult to imagine when we were all locked up in our, uh, you know, in our rooms, in our homes, that actually now was an opportunity, potentially a once-in-a-generation opportunity to make super normal returns and even if you think it was obvious at the time it probably wasn't so don't again from a long-term capital allocation standpoint uh, try and be too cute in that regard brilliant now Simon I want to talk take a little bit of a break here now and ask you some personal questions about your own investing strategy um, do you hold an ISA a SIP how do you invest and what is your personal investing strategy to try and understand that my 
major source of, of, of income, of, of, of wealth, uh, is my, um, um, my economics output, my intellectual property, my employability. So I try, without going into too much specifics, if you like to hedge against that. So um, things that are unlike, you know, let's say I'm exposed as I am as a, as a, as a homeowner and as an economist in the city to the financial cycle. I'm looking for assets that are um, as close as possible. I mean, the, you know, it's very difficult to find negative beta assets, but some low beta assets to the financial cycle, because from a, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a Simon French balance sheet standpoint, that is the best hedge against my major earning power and my other major assets. So, you know, I, I am a bit of a gold bug in that regard. I like the the, the zero or in some cases negative alpha as the negative betas that uh, you see on some of the UK listed and indeed globally listed gold producers. It's not for everyone. I, I absolutely get the gold is not for everybody, um, but uh, as the type of asset that is sort of hedged against the aforementioned sort of assets that I have, um, both tangible and intangible assets, it feels like the best complement. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Now, I'm, I'm conscious that you've got a, a young bairn, you know, a little one, um, 18 months of age or, or thus. Have you started any savings plans for your young daughter? Yes. Uh, yes, I have. Um, at, at this stage, um, just a, a, a cash uh, savings account because I mean one of the things we haven't covered is that the returns to cash having been uh, poultry for 13 14 years uh, you know there are uh, two two three-year accounts now uh, yielding four and a half percent now you could argue after inflation that doesn't look particularly healthy but if you if you trust my economic forecasts uh, or my inflation forecast then uh, over that two three-year window, um, you're probably going to be generating a positive real return as inflation comes down and potentially undershoots if, if energy markets revert. And therefore, your real terms return on cash over the next three years uh, is looking as good as it has, I would say, for uh, about 15 years. Uh, there's the attraction. It provides the opportunity if I want to change allocation in two, three years time as my daughter gets uh, gets a bit older uh, to, to utilize that, obviously a very sort of liquid asset class. Um, but that there is the challenge actually for publicly listed companies um, and uh, you know, all investors is that suddenly cash represents a viable alternative um, having not been pretty and very attractive for quite a lot of people's entire investment life. It's certainly if you're a younger investor. Brilliant. Now you touched on gold and it not having any non-yielding, but safe towards almost negative correlating sort of asset. Now, lots of people have been talking about the, the merits of gold for, for decades, the time in more room. Um, so I'm conscious of, of what I'm asking you to expand on why that asset is the, is the main asset you've chosen to, to invest in away from your main assets and your, in, yeah. Yeah, your portfolio. It's the, Sorry. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it is, it is not based on an expectation that gold will outperform all the other uh, investment asset classes. It is the 
um, relationship with my other major source of income and wealth, uh, which is the, the, I think it has to be a cornerstone, a, a sort of lodestar, if you like, of investors to understand where your principal value as, a, as an individual, as a if you're of working age, where that value is derived from and, and should events turn really bearish for economists and or the housing market uh, and or financial services, which is kind of my, my, my other exposure. What is the type of thing that could lean in against that? And, and that's why I like gold. I also work with our, um, our mining analyst uh, here at Pamir on our own uh, gold product, uh, the Golden Nugget research uh, that goes out once a quarter, which looks at the UK listed uh, gold mining space. And I like the fact that, look, um, there is, there's obviously the bottom up approach to understanding investments, looking at companies like Sentamin, uh, Fresnillo, Hoschild, you know, there are UK um, uh, Ariana resources, there are Pan-African, there's, there's quite a few gold listed, uh, you know, gold mining companies listed in London, um, for whom understanding their production profile, their mine plans, their management teams is really important for investors. But bring that expertise from our mining analyst, together with an economist who will understand, or at least I hope I understand, central bank demand for buying gold. Uh, one of the big buyers in the gold market is central banks, uh, potentially quite a big buyer going forward if the weaponization of dollars and weaponization of euros as a result, result, of, the Russia, result of the Russia invasion of Ukraine starts to make central banks look at other um, proxies for, for holding assets rather than direct dollar exposure, gold could benefit from that, but also the interaction with the US dollar, the interaction with inflation. These are big macro themes, which an economist has something to say on. Put that analysis together with uh, a mining analyst. We think we got a pretty good product there, which the, the, the mining sector, the gold mining sector seem to quite like. I think that's the power of an economist and a sell-side researcher working in tandem. Brilliant. Yeah, that sounds like a, a fantastic combination. Now, you touched on the mining side, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to ask this question, Simon. Um, a lot of conversations being had and, and it's prominent in all corporate language now for many companies currently um, with regards to net zero targets. Um, should sustainability be part of a company's fundamentals going forward, not just mining companies, but any companies at all? Uh, yes, uh, but, and I've written about this quite a bit, um, is ESG has to evolve on two fronts. It has to evolve into becoming uh, business as usual for all companies, not just public companies, but private companies, and therefore ESG's great success. Uh, sustainability agenda's big success will be when it is effectively eliminated from being a standalone topic and it's just integrated in how it, uh, uh, it is approached. The other thing is not to make, and this is crucial, uh, I think, not to make sustainability, ESG, um, too much of a quantitative exercise because the heterogeneity, the diversity of companies across sectors, even within sectors, means that if you pick a metric and you ask all companies to you know, report against that metric, you almost invariably just, it's not going to be fit for purpose for large swathes of the market. You end up gaming it, you end up misreporting. I think the nuance 
of ESG will be ESG 2.0, which I hope emerges out of this period of capital market volatility. We get ESG um, not being sort of uh, as quantitatively driven, which is a big challenge for capital markets that want to be more passive, more quantitative, and being asked, asking it to be a bit more qualitative is a big ask when the, the big value here is on uh, is on automating and quantifying a lot of the reporting metrics to try and reduce the end uh, cost for investors. But but I think it's a necessary thing in the sustainability agenda. Love that reply. Thank you. Now. Um... Peter Bernstein, the American financial historian, economist, and educator, is quoted as saying, the fundamental law of investing is uncertainty of the future, which as an economist, you, I'm sure you agree with. Um, with that in mind, what are your goals and ambitions for Panyol Gordon going into 2023 and beyond? Well, look, I can't speak for the, the company at large. Look, we have a strategy, uh, which I'll briefly talk about, which is to continue to be the trusted partner for you know, growth companies in the UK public and indeed the private markets. Um, and that trust element, I think, is really, really important for investors. Um, there are, you know, particularly in a year when some asset classes, and we haven't yet talked, I wonder whether it's up your sleeve to talk about crypto assets, but, you know, um, as a time when it is, uh, trust is an important um, enabler of good allocation of capital, crypto assets, I would say, is a particularly bad allocation of capital. I would say, Pamela buttressing its 140-year reputation of being a trusted advisor is absolutely front and centre of what we're trying to do and raise money for those companies who we think are the future of better rates of economic productivity in the UK, more healthy capital markets. But I can probably more eloquently speak about my own priorities on the research side and the, the, the economic side um, directly in terms of my economic analysis. You know, uh, economists have been bruised, myself included, by this surge of inflation, the, the type we haven't seen for 30 to 40 years. Understanding the persistence of that, uh, documenting that and providing, you know, um, you know, reappraisal of our models on how we model inflation, I think is a really important priority for economists to retain uh, relevance and credibility. Uh, so I will be trying to do that as a figurehead or as a central part of my economic research. And then in terms of running a research department, I'd go back to the fact that um, we've got some unbelievably talented equity analysts that uh, work in that team. And ensuring that they are giving investors, both retail and institutional investors, the best summary of the investment case um, is, is, is paramount, is absolutely paramount, because uh, if we don't, capital will get misallocated, efficiency will be lower, productivity will be lower, and we all will be poorer. This is the great, if you like, social function, which is not a thing often talked about in capital markets, but there is a social function here, which is that if capital could be allocated more efficiently and professional services, stockbrokers, researchers have an important role in that, then we can all benefit, be it pensioners, retail investors, savers, um, governments, taxpayers. There, there, there is a, 
a big upside here. And, you know, in our relatively small part in that ecosystem, certainly at a sort of UK or global economy level, it's a small part of the ecosystem, performing a really important role in, in breaking down, if you like, informational asymmetries. I love that reply. I think the, the importance of what you've said there is about the, the social function that you and your team actually engender going forward for everybody. Um, we, we often talk about the fact that building wealth is is a marathon, not a sprint. And, and I would ask you, therefore, to just give one piece of advice. I think you've touched on it mainly already to, to someone on the cusp of pursuing financial independence through investing in the markets. Yeah, in terms of one piece of advice is um, to stay, stay investing with a sense of humility and, and recognizing what you don't know. Um, I went to give an economics talk at my old school, uh, which I hadn't been back to for almost 20 years. I gave it uh, just over 12 months ago. And I spoke, I hope, eloquently for about 45 minutes to the sixth form about economics, like in, uh, inflation, labor markets, um, you know, this, this sort of workhorse economic modeling approach. And I had 15 minutes of questioning. They were all about non-fungible tokens and crypto assets. Uh, maybe a sense of the type of people I was talking to were the type of age of the people I was talking to. And um, what struck me was, if you like, there was a a blind faith there of a, a sort of a, a belief that stuff, you know, stuff, these assets could only go up. Uh, you know, it was new economy, the old stockbroker financial services model did not understand what was going on. Uh, and I leaned back into that saying, look, private currencies have been around for millennia and they've always failed through the lack of institutional backing. Uh, important, uh, although uncomfortable that may be for some investors who want a more, a less uh, uh, a currency that is less embedded with the role of the state, but it's an important function. And I think it will, how I bring that back to the important bit of advice to investors is we get ourselves into the worst uh, bit of exuberance when uh, we think we've you know, reinvented the wheel, something is new. There's very little new. There's variations on some old stuff that may look new, but um, I think always be, be humble, show a bit of humility that uh, something that is truly new and novel is a very, very rare thing. It is more likely that it is an iteration of something in the past. And therefore those lessons, deep research, looking at data of historical trends have a real value in informing your opinion. Brilliant. I, I love that response. Uh, we have so many of a certain, you know, maybe this is just Gen Z or maybe some above. I know some some people um, that are, are older than me that have gone into crypto and I've gone, why? <laughs> you know, but everyone has to learn some somehow and somewhere. Now, you touched on schools and going back into school, Simon. I want you to touch on the philanthropic side and the the the, the, the paying it forward side of, of, of yourself. And I'm not sure where you find the time, to be honest, but you were, you were formerly the, the governor of the Brentford School for Girls. So share with us a little bit about that, what you did, your role going there, hopefully trying to entice more young more young women to, to join the investment industry, but maybe, I don't know. Um, so not, not so much with a view to uh, encouraging 
the, the young ladies at uh, Brentford School for Girls for following their career path. It was, it was actually much more than I have uh, had at the time, spent about 15 years in both the public sector and the private sector in quite a um, mathematical data intensive environment. And actually, a lot of what we're asking our schools to do right now uh, across the full spectrum of schools, from free schools through academies, through to the private sector, is to run themselves like businesses, or at least come into, um, if you like, the exposure of you know, energy markets when they're buying their energy contracts, um, insurance, etc., uh, running you know uh, quite significant budgets in a, a time where you know prices, wages are, are quite volatile. My role, actually, I thought, could could be to support a school that had a governing council at the time when I joined it that was very much embedded in the educational side of things, but perhaps didn't have the full skill set on the financial side. So I supported, uh, to the best of my ability, um, the, the team to make that transition, which all schools are going through at the moment, to being run a little bit more like businesses and make sure they don't, they're going back to this theme that I've come to again and again in this podcast, trying to minimize the errors. Not make perfect decisions, but minimize the errors. And uh, if my tenure on the governing board allowed us to be more efficient in, in how we allocated uh, you know, the, the, the money that is given to the, 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 the um, state system by government, uh, then that allows uh, other money to support education. So it's the efficiency argument that a good governing board that has good financial acumen can support the teachers who did. I mean, the head teacher was an inspiration, is an inspirational figure at Brentford School for Girls, and I have a total admiration for what she has been able to do with her senior leadership team. And so all I wanted to do was be able to support um, her and her SLT on that journey. Brilliant. Um, I'm, I'm really, really pleased that you, you've done that. And I, I think, unfortunately, as you, you've touched on, my, my daughter's my daughter's 15. And at the moment, it's just academic, academic, academic. It's got more homework, more homework, more exams, more tests. And I think it's important to, to actually think about how we teach and enable our young people to become um, young adults um, and not make it purely driven about yeah. academic results. I think that's very important to look at that. Now, um, Simon, you've, as someone who studied and analysed and dedicated most of your life thus far to the pursuit of clarity and understanding regarding economics and economics data um, during your various roles, what is one truth about economics that you've only recently discovered or fully appreciated up until recently? Oh, gosh, there is a good question. Um, I think that, you know, no regime, economic regime uh, is forever. Um, and we can think of the lower for longer or lower forever thesis that dominated investment thinking, the idea the cost of capital was stuck at the lower bound. Um, I probably, I, did, I, I don't think I ever subscribed to the lower forever thesis, but I, I didn't see this pickup um, that initially started in the energy market, initially started in consumer durables, but started to generate inflation elsewhere in the economy. Uh, I didn't see that it would, if you like, generate the level of second order effects because I thought a lot of a lot of what we'd seen was um 
what was was a thing of the past from the 1970s, 80s. We'd, we'd, we'd lost it. Um, but it has come back in, in, in quite a, a varied range of guises. And so that's reinvented my understanding of how the transmission mechanism works between an exogenous shock on prices and potentially second order inflation, which I thought had gone away and certainly had gone away for about 30, 40 years. Okay, I'm going to ask you politely, could you just, for the in layman's terms, could you expand on the second order effects of the inflationary transition that we've had? For, uh, for yeah, of listeners. course. Sorry. Yeah, no, so second order effects is, uh, so, so energy markets generated the initial surge of inflation, but inflation we're now starting to see in wages, in rental markets, are the type of things that are second order, stubborn inflation, second order effects. Brilliant. Yeah, thank you very much. Now, Simon, I've got two final questions for you. Um, conscious of, of, of time, so I'm going to just um, go back to the Marco Corder quote that we um, I asked you about uh, earlier, and then ask you really um, to focus on your final achievements. Uh, I'm conscious that you're only a young man in your 40s, so it's not <laughs> final. Final with respect to we're putting a close on to 2022. So from a young man interested in maths to a close of 2022, what is your pr proudest personal achievement? Success today, please, Simon. Uh, unquestionably, um, the, the, the fact I've kept my daughter alive for 18 months. Um, and I say that because um, parenting gives you a whole new perspective of what is important. We spent a lot of time talking about financial markets, uh, investing, but actually the, the pride that I get from going home at the end of a long day and seeing that my daughter is healthy and happy. Uh, and, you know, I've got to give enormous credit, far more credit to, to my wife than to me. But I've played a role uh, in that. Um, it, it gives me great pride. No, uh, brilliant. Uh, the th thing what I love about that response, and I feel it too, and when you said it, I was like, oh, that's a perfect answer, is that when, when my daughter arrived, I was it. That's it. I retired. I said, I'm not going to work for anyone again. I'm retired, I've got enough money, I'm done, I'm not going to work again. And I've been doing that since, since the age of 39. So spending that quality of time with her has been absolutely enormous. And it's changed my, my every single facet of me since then. So, yeah, and having a daughter first will, will, will make you uh, think differently about almost everything. Um, right. Thank you for that response, Simon. Thank you. So my final question, Simon, thank you ever so much for being on this, this podcast with me. Um, we're currently seeing elevated economic uncertainty, Simon. We touched on most of it already. Rise in inflation, geopolitical dis, um, distress, um, war, UK government turmoil, which we've had um, ongoing. Hopefully that's settling now. We're going to 2023. And investors' expectations are low. Um, there's a level of fear and dread um, regarding the markets. However, I wanted just to finish on a positive note, Simon. Would you like to close this interview with regards to the potential long-term benefits of prudent long-term investing Simon please yeah so all of us who have any uh, excess capital that we don't want to immediately consume that have a choice of how to allocate it um, if we can find parts of the economy that we can't directly work uh, on or with um, but we can get exposure to through providing capital either through debt capital markets or public equity, the various sources, then we can share in those gains and those companies can get 
an allocation to be able to do more of the good stuff, the more productive stuff. It's the social welfare of, uh, of, ca of capital markets. It's to move savers uh, wealth to areas where it can be most productively delivered for all parties. And when it becomes a zero-sum game where everyone's battling for you know, their, their share of the pie, it can be quite destructive. But when you can find the economic opportunities where everyone can benefit, that's the real beauty, the real social welfare function of investing. And uh, that's why you'd want to, to do it, because it's a, it's a never-ending challenge. But the rewards, not just for you, but socially, are, are pretty great when you get it right. Brilliant. Love that reply. Uh, Simon, it's been absolutely fantastic, insightful. I knew it would be. I knew I'd enjoy this interview. Thank you ever so much for coming on here um, onto the Investing Matters podcast with me. That was Simon French, the Chief Economist, Head of Research at Panmure Gordon. You can also find Simon on a regular basis on CNBC, Bloomberg, BBC, Sky, and also at, uh, as a Times con columnist. Um, Simon, thank you for ever so much, sir. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you, Peter. We'll speak to you soon. God bless. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Investing Matters. Be sure to check out the London Southeast website for free tools and info to research your next investment. You can also join in the conversation on our social media channels. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content, including our CEO interviews. Catch you next time.